We're going to go to Ruth chapter 4 now. So if you've got a Bible, head there. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. I'm going to read, we're going to pray, and we're going to close out this series on Ruth for us today. So Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. This is the Word of God. This is what it says. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in, in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that you are a God who is deeply and intricately involved in the lives of people. And we thank you, God, that we see in this story your hidden hand of providence at work in ways that aren't even be able to be perceived by people of this generation, but that echoes through the years, the centuries, and the generations and renowned for your glory. And so we pray this morning, as we look at this word, you might speak to us, transform us, make us more like Jesus. And we prayed in his strong name. Those who agreed said, Amen. I don't know if you've seen that TV show, Who Do You Think You Are? on SBS. It's a TV show where they take uh, famous Australians and they dig a bit on their family history and help them find out a little bit more about who they are and where they came from and um, it's kind of a, a bit of an emotional show, I guess, because family history is significant and important, and often there's secrets that have been hidden that get revealed in the course of this show. There was one particular show that highlighted uh, Luke Nguyen, you know, the, the famous Vietnamese chef, restaurateur. They d dug a bit on his family history, and he knew that his grandfather had fled from China to Vietnam and been caught up in the Vietnam War. But what he didn't know was that in that process, his father, had actually, his grandfather, sorry, had actually left a wife and a child behind in China that his family didn't know about. And so he goes on this hunt through southern China to try and find his long-lost grandmother and maybe a stepmom. I'm not too sure how that works, but he doesn't find them. And he finds out in the process of his family fleeing to Vietnam that they undergo a heap of suffering, tragic suffering as a result of the war. And it was a really humbling and shaping and defining experience for him. As they interview him, you can see he's quite moved emotionally because your family history defines so much about who you are. You know, whether you like it or not, you are a product of your past. You are a product of your parents. I mean, you're a product of your parents just because of their DNA and their personality types and all of those sorts of, sorts of things shape you to some extent. But you're a product of their decisions and maybe the decisions of your grandparents. Maybe you're a second or third generation immigrant to Australia. And the reason that you are who you are is because your family decided to move country or move city or move suburb or move schools. 
We're all a product of our past and we're shaped by that. People have always been fascinated about their family history, their genealogy, particularly I think those who have been adopted or maybe those who are from the stolen generation have unanswered questions about their identity because they don't know where they came from. People are fascinated about our family history and that was no less true for Israel. God's people kept very accurate records of their family tree, of their lineage, of their genealogy. And for them, it was really important. Now, in fact, even today, you can still go to the Middle East today and meet people who will recite from memory 15 generations covering hundreds of years back of their family lineage. It's significantly important, particularly for Middle Eastern culture. But for the Jews, it had special importance for a number of reasons. The first reason that your family lineage is important is because the land is tied to the family name. And so the allotment of the promised land is allotted out according to the tribes of Israel. And so land title and land rights were tied to the fact that you could trace your family lineage back to one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's important for that reason. Additionally, it's important for certain particular offices that existed in the nation of Israel. For those who were Levites, God had called them and set them apart, made them holy for the work of the temple as priests in God's temple. And so the Levites kept accurate records to trace their family lineage back to the tribe of Levi. But more importantly than that was the line of the king that came from the line of Judah and the line of David. The Messiah would come from this line. And so the people of Israel would keep an accurate record of the genealogies of the tribe of Judah down through David to make sure that they were ready for the coming of the Messiah, the King. And so their people, their families were really important for them. And the story of Ruth is a story of a family that has a past and a history. And as we close out Ruth here this morning, we're going to see the intricacies of God working in one family's life. These are ordinary people and God is at work and amidst their brokenness and their suffering and their ordinariness. And He is at work achieving a purpose far beyond just this family and their generation for His glorious purpose throughout all of history. This is a phenomenal, phenomenal story that we've been walking through. And this morning we get to step back a few generations and see just what God has been doing here in this story. But let me just give you a quick recap of where we've been. If you've not been here over the last few weeks, this is the story of Ruth in 40, 50 seconds. Here we go. Elimelech and Naomi are married. They've got two sons, Malon and Kilion. They move from Bethlehem to Moab because of a famine. It's a disobedient decision on part of this family. Famine was a sign of God's judgment. Instead of moving, they should have repented, asked that God would bring an end to that famine, but they feel like the grass is greener on the other side. There is more provision. There is better opportunity, so they move. Tragically, Elimelech dies. Malon and Kilion die, not before taking two Moabite women as their wives, Orpah and Ruth, in the midst of this tragedy, Naomi hears that the Lord has um, returned to the land, that he has blessed them, that he has brought a harvest, and she decides to head back to Bethlehem. She pleads with her two daughters-in-law to stay, to return to their families, their land and their gods. Orpah returns, but Ruth clings to her, saying, 
Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. More importantly, your God will be my God. And she returns with Naomi back to Bethlehem. When she gets there, Naomi cries out, Do not call me Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant. Rather, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has dealt heavily with me. Ruth and her love and commitment to her mother-in-law begins to glean behind the harvesters in a field, picking up the scraps that are left over as the harvesters harvest the wheat. And she picks it up and, and Boaz, this man who owns the estate, notices this young foreign woman gleaning in his field, takes notice of her, is kind to her, blesses her, provides for her, protects her. A little relationship begins to develop here over the course of maybe six to eight weeks of the harvest. And we get to the end of the harvest and Naomi starts freaking out that this temp job that Ruth has scored is coming to end. Her opportunity to kind of move in with the man Boaz is running out and so she hatches this crazy risky plan for Ruth to go and lay at the floor of Boaz's feet in the middle of the night in the threshing floor and say, do with me what you want. Ruth in her beautiful wisdom and unambiguous ways, gets there, lies down, says, Boaz, marry me, propose to me, let's do this. He says, yes. He goes to the gate. He finds out that there is another man, a closer relative who has redemption rights before him. He says, will you redeem this land? Yes. Oh, if you do, you need to redeem Ruth and Naomi and you need to provide a son for this family. And the closest redeemer says, I cannot do it. It's too costly. Boaz, you do it. He takes off his Haviana, throws it as a sign of the contract being sealed. And then we get to Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. This moment that we've kind of all been waiting for. So here it is. Ready? Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Mawage. <laughs> Mawage is what brings us together today. Finally, the moment my GC dared me to do that, I'm sorry. Finally, the moment that we've been waiting for, Ruth and Boaz get married. The moment that, that Naomi has been planning in her head. The moment that as we read the narrative, we've been pining for, for this wedding. It's the climax of every love story that there's a wedding. And we kind of get to the wedding bit and the narrator, the, the author just gives us a wedding and a honeymoon and a baby and nine months and all in one verse, 26 words. Right? You're like, hang on a sec, this is the best bit. And it gets 26 words. Because the deal is that the wedding's not actually the focus of this story. It's not the focus of this chapter. There is a, a child here who is the focus. You notice that it says there in verse 13 that the Lord gave Ruth conception. That he has given her, blessed her with a child. This is Ruth who'd been married to Malon for 10 years and had remained childless. Ten years of trying to fall pregnant. Ten years of failure. Ten years probably of self-blame. Ten years of disappointment. And the Lord gives her consent. I mean, what's Ruth thinking at that point where she goes to marry Boaz? She's like, am I the problem here? Is this going to happen again? Is, is this going to be another ten years of disappointment? But the Lord gives her conception. And it looks like it's a honeymoon baby, right? 
You know, God is the one in the end who superintends that, that little meeting point between the sperm and the egg as it forms into a zygote and then travels down and embeds itself on the uterine wall. God's in control of that process. That process didn't work for 10 years for Ruth. And God gives life. And you fast forward nine months and Naomi and Boaz and Ruth are blessed with a boy. And a boy is good because a boy can inherit the land. They may have had to have kept trying if they couldn't, but this is a culture where the firstborn male stands to receive the inheritance. And so here, God not only blesses them with a child, but he blesses them with a boy. You know, I remember when our son Judah was born on the 7th of January, 2012, in Nepean Private Hospital. We uh, hadn't quite, things hadn't quite gone to plan the way we'd expected them would. After 14 hours of labor, the doctor said to Tash, emergency cesarean, this child is not coming out, the head is too big, we're going to have to put you on the operating theater and bring this child out. And so they did. And uh, I'm, you know, they put this little screen up to just allow me to just see Tasha's head. And I'm like, this is a bit boring. And so I'm kind of like leaning around the screen, just looking at this gaping hole that's there. And they pull the baby out. I'm, I've got photos of Judah. It looks like the Lion King. They pull him up. And this operating theatre light is there and he's covered in blood. And it's just, it's amazing, right? This moment where my firstborn son comes into the world and he's screaming and they're rubbing him off and they wrap him up and Tash goes into recovery for two hours and they send me with this little child in a perspex box on wheels and they make me wheel it back to our room and I get there and the nurse leaves and I'm there with Judah and he's just like snuggled up there, wrapped up, you know, rooting around looking for a nipple to suck on because that's what they do. And I didn't know what to do, two hours. And I'm like, can I pick him up? It's like, hang on, I thought there was her supposed to be skin on skin contact with the mother straight away, but do I wait two hours? And he's a bit upset, so I picked him up and then I heard a nurse coming. I quickly put him down because I, <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was allowed to do that or not. And she would go and I'd pick him up again. But, you know, there was this moment of great joy. Our family came in and they saw their grandson and our friends came in and we took all these photos and videos and then Piper came along and there's like half the photos and videos of the second child. But... This is a moment of joy, a moment of joy for our family, a moment of joy for Naomi, who was facing the prospect of being a widow with nothing. And then Boaz and Ruth have a boy, and it's a moment of joy for this family. But you know, in, in any church, in any group of people, really, there is always a quota of people who have wrestled with having a child, wrestled with being able to fall pregnant. And in the midst of a community's joy over childbirth, there is always someone who is hurting and grieving and struggling to rejoice with those who rejoice. And so as a church that seeks to love people and care for people, as we rejoice in the news of new birth, we also need to be mindful of those who are hurting at the same time. But for now, after 10 years of grief, of waiting, it's Ruth's turn to be happy and to rejoice in the joy of motherhood. And her whole town rejoices with her. Have a look at what the women say in verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, 
who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name, the Redeemer's name, be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and she became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Now as you read those verses there, my question is, who's the Redeemer? Who is Naomi's Redeemer? Is it, is it God? Are these women rejoicing in God's redemption of Naomi? That doesn't work because Ruth didn't give birth to God or to Boaz. She gave birth to Obed. And so in fact, it's actually this child, a child that is a Redeemer. Not in the sense of, you know, like Boaz redeems Ruth and Naomi in the property in a legal sense. This child is a redeemer. Same word. Same word that is used of Boaz earlier in chapter 4. This child is a redeemer in the sense that he redeems Ruth and Naomi from their poverty. That he redeems them from the prospect of having to sell themselves as slaves to put food on the table to survive and to have a roof over their heads. You see, this is an era where a child is your social security. A child is your retirement plan. A child is your superannuation. And so this child provides for Ruth and Naomi. This is the, the boy who will grow up to till the land, to work hard, to plant the seed, to provide for this family. And in that sense, Obed is Naomi's redeemer in the same way that Boaz redeems Ruth as well. What we see here at the end of chapter 4 is a complete reversal of Naomi's circumstance. You remember, she returned to the land and she cried out, Don't call me sweet, call me bitter. Call me Mara because the Lord has afflicted me. She came back saying, Mike, I come back empty-handed. And here you see her sitting there cuddling her new grandchild. It's a complete reversal of Naomi's circumstances here. She's always had Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who has been a blessing to her. In fact, the women of the town say that Ruth is worth more than seven sons to Naomi. And, and that's a symbolic way of saying the perfect family. If you had lots of boys in the family, it was a good thing. Because boys, again, inheritance and work and provision in this culture wouldn't work like that in 2016. That would be horribly sexist. But that's what it was like in the ancient Near East culture. And Ruth, they say, is more valuable to Naomi than a whole quiver of sons in your family. But she adds to this blessing of Ruth, the blessing of a new son-in-law in Boaz and a new grandchild in Obed. And it's interesting how much expectation and hope is tied up with a child, with a boy. And it's not just Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. You see, the whole town is into this. The women there pray for this child. Verse 14 again, they say, And may his name be renowned in Israel. They want to see the name of, of Obed made famous, recognized, remembered. They want him blessed. Before the women and before Boaz and, and Ruth get married, 
as Boaz goes to sort out this contractual agreement with the other redeemer, at the end of that process, the elders at the gate pray for this child. They pray for Boaz. They pray for Ruth. This is what it says in chapter 4, verse 11, last week's passage. May the Lord make the woman, that's Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. They're praying that Ruth would be used significantly in the process of fulfilling the promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as many as the sand on the seashore. That God would use Ruth as he has used Rachel and Leah. That's their prayer. And may you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your name be remembered. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom... Tamar border Judah because of the offspring of the Lord will give you to this woman. The connection there to Tamar is a connection because of the similar circumstance that they found themselves in. Tamar was married to Judah's firstborn son, Ur, who died. She was then married to Onan, Judah's secondborn, and he died. And she is in this position of seeking out a kinsman redeemer in the same way that Ruth is. And so the elders here make this connection like God has blessed this situation over here. May he bless you over here. There's a lot of expectation and hope associated with this child. And little did they know that those prayers God would take, not as an interruption to his plan, but he would use them in his glorious purposes to achieve what he has set out to achieve. This is what happens. Come back to verse 17 with me. A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. David, yes, King David. David. The book of Ruth opens by saying, in the time of the judges, the time where there was no king and everyone did as he saw fit, the time when there was, there was a mess, there was judgment of God on Israel, the time where there was no king, and then the book of Ruth closes with a reference to King David. And so as you begin to step back a generation and then another generation, all of a sudden, maybe you think, well, maybe God did have a plan in this. Maybe he did have a purpose in this story. You know, it would have been very easy for Naomi in Ruth chapter 1 as she returns from Moab to Bethlehem and she cries out, call me Mara. It would have been very easy to question God at that point, and, and, and she does. God, what, what have you been doing? Why did you take away my husband? Why did you kill my two sons, my future, my inheritance, my security? Why did you let them die? Why, God? And the reality is for Naomi, she never, never received the fullness of an answer to that question. Because as far as we're aware, Naomi didn't live long enough to see King David take the throne, her great-great-grandson.
But you begin to pan back a generation and another generation. And all of a sudden, what Naomi failed to see and know becomes crystal clear and obvious. That God had a plan. The reason that God sent Naomi and Elimelech to Moab, the reason that Elimelech and Malon and Kilion died, the reason that Ruth clung to Naomi and Orpah returned, the reason that Naomi just so happened to have gleaned in Boaz's field, the reason that Boaz was kind and generous, the reason that the risky plan on the threshing room floor worked, the reason that the other guy didn't redeem Ruth and Boaz did, the reason that they had a son and not a girl, the reason that, Naomi, uh, that Ruth even had a child, was that God would be at work. That God would be giving an indication of the type of kingdom that he would be building. A kingdom that is based on the foundation of grace. A kingdom that is inclusive of all people, not just Israel, but people of other nations. That God would be at work fulfilling this plan in the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. You see, we see in the story of Ruth and Naomi God's hidden hand of providence and grace and mercy. Even though Naomi did not have the privilege of knowing what that plan was. My guess is there are some of you here this morning who are wondering what God is doing in your life. What God is doing in your circumstances. What God is doing in your suffering. What God is doing in your season of disappointment. So rarely do we get the answers we long for. God, why? Why are you doing this? Sometimes God graces us with the answers, but often He doesn't. But you know, the story of Ruth and Naomi is here to drive us to deep, active faith and trust that God is sovereign, that He knows what He's doing, that there are no mistakes, that He is guiding, that He is using our poor decisions, that He is governing the coincidences in our life, that He is blessing our obedience, that He is planning that he is at work for our good and for his glory. If anything, the book of Ruth ought to drive us to a deep trust in God's goodness, his sovereignty, and his hand of providence. But the story doesn't end with King David. The story ends much, much further down the family line. I want to take you to a scene for a second. Imagine it in your head. The day is Yom Kippur, the most important day on a Jewish person's calendar. It's kind of like their Easter Sunday, the Day of Atonement, the day when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice for the sins of the people, the day where he would symbolically lay his hand on the head of that animal, that scapegoat that would be taken into the wilderness to say, sins have been removed. And this day, it wasn't a day of feasting and celebrating, it was a day of fasting and prayer. But on this day, in Joseph and Mary's house, the house that Jesus grew up in, the family had come round. Joseph's parents, Mary's parents, Jesus' uncle, 
Zechariah and Elizabeth and his cousin John, they were all there. And at the end of the day, they go home and, and Jesus turns to Joseph and Mary and he says, Mommy, Daddy, who were Granny and Grandpa's parents? And who were their parents before that? And Joseph and Mary have an awkward look at each other and think, all right, now's the time. We need to tell Jesus about the family tree. So Joseph goes and he gets his Old Testament Bible and I imagine maybe some scrolls and he pulls them out and they sit down on the floor around the coffee table and Joseph begins to tell Jesus about the family. And it would have gone something like this, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Well, hang on a sec. Who's, who's Tamar, mummy? Well, awkward. Uh, Tamar is, um, well, she's a Canaanitess for a start. She's not, she's not a Jew. And uh, here's the thing. Tamar, uh, she was married to Ju Judah's firstborn Ur and he died. And then she was married to Onan and he died. And Tamar was freaking out that she wasn't going to have a baby. And so she dressed up as a prostitute and tricked her father Judah into sleeping with her so she could have a baby. And that baby just happened to be twins, Perez and Zerah. Bit of an awkward one, but hey, she's there. She's in the family story. And Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Aminadab, and Aminadab Nashon, and Nashon Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Well, who's Rahab, mummy? Well... Rahab, how do I put this? Uh, she didn't pretend to be a prostitute. She just was. And um, Rahab kind of worked the city of Jericho. You know, the city that, that Joshua and the troops ran around and the walls fell down, that one. And anyway, she lied to her people in order to protect Israel. And, and so they spared her life. And she happened to get married to this guy called Salmon. And, and Boaz was their child. Oh, all of a sudden, it begins to make sense why Boaz maybe was a little bit older in life and hadn't been married yet. Maybe all of a sudden it begins to make sense why Boaz was willing to receive a foreign woman as his wife because that's exactly what his mum was. A foreigner, a prostitute, a risky person to marry. Rahab. This is a bit of a blip on the family tree. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Well, who's Ruth, mummy? Well, Oh, here's the deal with Ruth. She's a Moabitess whose people came about through an incestuous relationship when Lot's two daughters got him drunk and then snuck in to sleep with him. And those children formed the nation of Moab. And Ruth kind of got connected to Boaz by this whole kinsman redeemer thing. But anyway, she's in there as well. She's a part of the family. A bit awkward. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David, the king of David. Sorry, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife Uriah. Well, who was Uriah's wife, mummy? Well, Uriah, she was a Hittite because uh, Uriah was a Hittite and he was the leader of David's army. And in a season where David should have been off fighting a battle, he stayed at home and he peeked over his balcony and saw this beautiful lady called Bathsheba bathing and he called her to his room and he had sex with her and she fell pregnant. And in order for David to cover up his sin, he ordered that Uriah be murdered on the battlefield. And anyway, from that relationship came Solomon, the greatest king of all of Israel. It's a bit of a mess. 
Solomon, Rehoboam, Rehoboam, Abijah, Abijah, Asaph, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, Joram. And it keeps going and it keeps going. And so you get down to verse 15. Eliud, Eliezer, Eliezer fathered Matan, Matan fathered Jacob. Jacob, Jesus, is your grandpa who fathered Joseph, who's married to Mary. Bet you never thought genealogies could be so exciting. You dig a little, I mean, is it just me? You get to them in the Bible like, oh man, this is long. Skip next chapter and you just keep reading, right? These are fascinating, fascinating accounts of people, real people. The problem is we get put off because the names are hard to pronounce. We need to move past that and dig and find out who these people are and what their story is and how God has intricately woven them into his perfect plan. You know what all of these women had in common? Chances are all of them were not Israelite women. They were all outsiders, foreigners at that level. And all of them had an element of sexual brokenness in their life. All of them. And yet God used them. What are they doing here? Like, is this just an embarrassing blip on Jesus' family history? Get to the family tree, they're like, oh, I don't want to have to tell you this story, but... Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and there's no mistake that the bloodline of Jesus includes a Moabitess foreigner and a prostitute and adultery because what God is doing in that is he is demonstrating the type of kingdom that he is building one that is on the foundation of grace that his kindness is shown to people that God is demonstrating that he is building a nation for himself that is not exclusively one race. That promise from Genesis 12 is fulfilled in Revelation 7 where you see the people gathered around the throne, people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. This is a glimpse. These women are a glimpse of what God was going to do in calling all people of the world, redeeming all people to himself. God had a perfect plan. And that perfect plan swept up some shady foreign women in it. But you know what? It's not just the women. I mean, the women are tame. Let's be real. The women are tame. Take a look at the men. Abraham, for example, lied about Sarah being his wife. Nah, she's my sister. It's convenient for me. David, adulterer, murderer. Solomon, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Or worst of all, the worst king in all of Israel, King Ahaz, who erected statues of Baal in the temple and participated in infant sacrifice. And he's in the family tree. Now, to be fair, there's some good guys in there, like Boaz is in there. There's some good guys. But this family tree is an utter mess, it's a complete mess. From incest to adultery to murder to infanticide, it is a mess at every level. And despite that, and sometimes often in that, God is at work. You know, there would be some of you here who would say something like, well, I'm not really sure if God could use me. I'm not really sure if I'm fit for God's family, for the church, for God's people. Because my past is too messy, my sin is too bad, my family situation is jacked up. I am unredeemable. 
This story screams against that. Because your usefulness to God is not dependent on your track record and your family history. It's dependent on you being redeemed and called to be one of God's people born again. God uses prostitutes and liars and murderers and adulterers, sexually immoral, as a demonstration that you cannot out-sin the grace of God. Do you realize that? You cannot out-sin God's grace. For most of you, you can't even tick the box on half the things that these people have done. And God still uses them for His purposes. Who are we to say, God, your grace is not sufficient to redeem my mess and brokenness? The whole point, the whole point of this book, the whole point of genealogies like this is to demonstrate that God can and does use unlikely, broken people to achieve His purposes. Nothing gets in the way. And this redemption that God has planned and purposed comes through a child, funnily enough. Jesus' uncle Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, when he hears of the birth of his son and names him John, knowing that Mary is pregnant, he prophesies. They've been waiting for the consummation of Israel, faithful people, and he prophesies this in John, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And his father, that's John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. God is at work here. These verses are about a child, about Jesus, who at this point is still a fetus in Mary's womb. And Zechariah recognizes that in this moment, in this child, God is going to redeem his people. This is the thing that God has been planning all along. Jesus has come. He is our Redeemer. You know, that language of redemption is not language that we often use all too much today. And maybe, I guess, I was trying to find a place where we use that language, and the only place I could think of that this language of redemption comes into play is maybe when you bought an iTunes card two years ago, because no one buys iTunes cards anymore. Everyone's on Spotify, whatever streaming service you use, and so we just pay 100 bucks a year and all the music you want. But when you did buy an iTunes card, what you did is you went to JB Hi-Fi and you paid $50 for a piece of plastic. They gave you a piece of plastic for $50. The plastic's not even worth two cents. You take that piece of plastic home and you get in front of your computer and there's a little code on the back and you go into the iTunes store and there's a little word, three lines down, you click it, it says redeem. You put your code in. And then you rightfully get back the $50 credit that was yours. That's the only example I could think of in our culture where we talk about this idea of redemption. Maybe if you're a lawyer, there's policy somewhere that includes this language, but it's foreign to us. The first century idea of redemption is very different from that. It's a word that comes from the slave trade. It's a word that is associated with slavery. You see, if someone had been purchased, a person had been purchased, you could go and pay a price, a ransom, a sum of money to either purchase that person as your slave or to purchase that person to set them free. 
In first century culture, if you fell upon hard financial circumstances, there was no protection of bankruptcy. There was no social security. You had to sell your family often as slaves to pay off your debt. And Israel was commanded to redeem their brothers and sisters, to buy their freedom. So this is the language of redemption that we get. When Zechariah prophesied that Jesus would redeem his people, he has one big assumption in that prophecy, and that is that we're all enslaved and need redeeming. We need saving. There is something that holds us, that binds us, that weighs us down. There is a burden. And that's not popular to talk about being a slave in 2016. But that's who we are. And if we're honest with ourselves, we will admit that we're more often than not enslaved to the opinions of other people. We're more often than not enslaved to our own unmet ambitions. And more often than not, if we're really honest, we're enslaved to a screen, are we not? But spiritually, that's true of us as well. Spiritually, we are slaves to sin because we are sinners by nature and by choice. We've chosen to reject our God and we have been trapped by sinful hearts that we cannot change. Controlled. That's what it means to be enslaved, is it not? You can't leave. You can't go. You've got no control over the circumstance. We are truly trapped. Self-improvement only takes us far enough. What we really need is to be set free. And Jesus does exactly that. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus frees us. Jesus redeems us. The payment is his blood. We've been redeemed through the blood of Jesus. The power that trapped us of sin, Jesus has paid for by his death. The power of death that trapped us has been dealt with as Jesus rose again from the dead. Jesus has set us free. He truly is our Redeemer. This Redeemer was the great, 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 great grandson of Ruth. And Boaz. See, God has this cosmic, eternal, crazy plan. You notice that in, in Ephesians 1.10? He has a plan, a purpose. And in that plan, he included people like Naomi, and he included people like Ruth, and he included people like Boaz. And if Jesus has redeemed you, he includes you as well. This is not God has a plan for your life and he's going to bless you. No, 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 this is far greater than that. This is God has this crazy, perfect, eternal plan and his plan was to send Jesus to redeem you for your good and for his glory. That's the plan. That's the purpose of God. In the end, here, Ruth is not a story, a love story of a, a, a widow meeting her Prince Charming and they get married. 
This is a little microcosm of the gospel. This is a little window into one family and the way that God worked in that family to achieve his glorious purposes for the whole of humanity. The other thing I want you to notice here is, is how God seems to just use ordinary people. Like Ruth is a Moabitess. She's a widow. She's poor. Boaz is kind of awkwardly single, later than most people. Joseph and Mary, who were they? Joseph is just a carpenter. He's a tradie. Mary is a young, probably 14-year-old girl. They're poor. Who are these people that God includes in his plan? They're ordinary people that an extraordinary God uses for his purposes. And so every day as you go to work, the mums, as you care for your children, gee, you never know who your kids are going to grow up to be. As you study, whatever you do, in your everyday stuff of life, God is using ordinary people to achieve his glorious purposes. God is using messed up, broken, sinful people to achieve his glorious purposes. The wonder and the magnitude of the purposes and the plans of God, that we, that we would be caught up in what God is doing. But firstly, you need to be set free. You need to be redeemed. And so my question for you this morning is, have you been set free? Are you still trapped? Are you still bound by the sin in your life? Friends, there is a Redeemer, a Savior, who by His blood shed on the cross sets you free, truly free, spiritually free in the true sense of the word. Are you free? If you call yourself a Christian here this morning, are you living out your freedom? Or are you living like Israel did in the desert, grumbling against the Lord, wishing you were back in Egypt? Galatians 5 verse 1 says, For freedom Jesus has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. You have been set free. Are you living in light of that freedom? There is freedom on offer for every single one of us today. And we're going to celebrate that freedom now. We're going to celebrate it in two ways as the band comes and leads us in worship. But secondly, in the Lord's Supper, to my right down the front and up the back are stations with bread and grape juice. We invite you to come dip the bread into the grape juice, eat it, and remember your freedom that the blood of Jesus has set you free. Friends, if you're not a believer here this morning, don't feel you have to participate in this. Just sit back, watch, enjoy what you see. And if you're gluten-free, you have to go to the back stations. I'm going to pray for us and the band's going to come and lead us in worship. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you are the God who has this perfect, crazy, miraculous plan. That you are the God who has been working your purposes out, using ordinary people, broken people, messed up people for your glory. And Father, we thank you this morning that we get to be a part of what you are doing, that you have redeemed us. I pray for every single person in this room this morning who feels trapped by their sin, that you might reveal to them their Savior Jesus who has set them free. For those who have been walking with Jesus but are flirting with slavery, going back to Egypt, I pray that you might help us to see that when Jesus has set us free, we are free indeed. Transform us, God, we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.